Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In the 19th century, the lighthouse was not just an aid to navigation, but also a cultural and aesthetic symbol, as well as a representation of advanced technology. In the United States, the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse was perhaps the most important on the entire eastern seaboard. During the Civil War, the powerful modern lens of the lighthouse disappeared. What happened to it? Was it ever found? Was it put in another lighthouse? Was it destroyed? Many people looked for it. One person thinks he has found it. We'll talk to him tonight. He's Kevin P. Duffus, author of The Lost Light, A Civil War Mystery, on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War 
Talk Radio World Headquarters Field Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, which is not far, a mile or so down 10th Street from where I'm sitting right now, not in my office there, and of course not speaking for the university or any other institution, uh, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio. Here at Oxford Road, it is, uh, there's an uproar in the kitchen. The long-awaited kitchen repairs have begun. Plumber was here this week to repair a leaking pipe underneath the floor, which was leading to all kinds of other consequences. To get to it, had to tear the sink out, which was okay because we're going to replace the sink and the countertops and the cabinets while we're at it. It's going to be a massive overhaul. Um, I'm finding any excuse I can to get out of town and avoid dealing with the whole mess. Uh, For example, I will be headed off to Cape Cod this weekend to visit with old college friends, tell lies, discuss things that were never true in the first place, and... uh, we will play golf and uh, badly in, in my case, and who knows, uh, stay up you know past 10 o'clock and all kinds of crazy things. It'll be a lot of fun. And then back to Michigan to visit uh, with Civil War Talk Radio's number one fan, my mother, who, uh, if all goes well, will be coming home from rehabilitation this Friday. Look forward to that. I'll be there to see her Sunday. My brother Greg will be there. Very, very good news that she's doing better. Hope that continues. And I'll uh, let you know next week about that. Uh, Being back in Detroit will be nice in the Detroit area. Unfortunately, uh, it will not be a World Series year, it looks like, for the Tigers, as uh, just read today in Miguel. Cabrera has ruptured a tendon. Uh, I hurt my back moving furniture last week at Bob's house, but that's nothing like what happened to him. He's out for the season. So wait till next year once again. History tells us things eventually come around. And history is worth listening to. Uh, You wouldn't be listening to the show right now if you didn't think history matters. I think it matters. Uh, Many of us do, which makes it all the more discouraging to encounter people who apparently don't think history matters or or don't uh, think it's significant enough, for example, to to hire people to teach it. Uh, I talked with you a little bit last week about my wife's experience at the Oakwood School here in Greenville, North Carolina, uh, which has decided history is not important enough to hire any qualified teachers. They've assigned uh, Emily, uh, who's in the next room right now, to in addition to being head of the English department, to also teach a history class. And she's an extraordinary English teacher. Uh, But she will not hit me with a frying pan if I point out that she is not qualified to teach history. Uh, She was the first one to tell them that. It doesn't, just being smart doesn't make you good at history. It doesn't give you a passion for the subject, doesn't give you the subject matter knowledge that you need, doesn't give you the background, doesn't give you the experience in writing and analyzing documents and researching. Uh, It doesn't work that way. Uh, Yet, uh, too many people think it does. Here at East Carolina University, our longtime uh, specialist in African history, uh, Kenneth Wilburn, is retiring after a long and rewarding career. 
we were told we would get a replacement African historian, uh, historian of Africa, but now uh, we're getting signals, at least we haven't found out yet that we're really getting the position back, and the signals are unclear. Uh, if we don't get that position filled, we will have approximately 20 historians teaching the history of uh, America or Europe, and two teaching the rest of the world, one South America, one Asia. No one teaching African history at all. Um, we'll be offering a major in African uh, and African-American uh, uh, studies, but we won't be offering any African history in it. Uh, we'll effectively be agreeing with our president that uh, it's a continent of, pardon my language, shithole countries whose history we need not teach at East Carolina University. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I hope the signals are, are being misinterpreted and we really will get someone to teach those courses next year. But it's discouraging when it doesn't, when it's not obvious to the administration. Of course, you need a uh, history department has to teach the history of the entire world in the 21st century, not just Western Civ. Well, in good news, history-wise, uh, next week is the annual Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. If you've never been to it, find a way to go. There's usually a waiting list to sign up. You may have to um, kidnap someone who's on the list and steal their identity uh, to be able to go. Uh, or you can write a good book. They might invite you. That works. Or you can host a Civil War podcast and get invited. That works for me this year. I will be there to talk about Civil War talk radio and interview people uh, and record them live in the field instead of as we're doing now by uh, phone or Skype. I'll be face-to-face. -face. We'll see how those interviews go. I'll bring the recordings home. And next fall, when we start the season up again, you'll get to hear uh, from some of the, the most interesting new people in the field, plus some, some veterans. It, it should be an interesting experience talking to people uh, live face-to-face. -face. We do have one more live show this season, the 2017-18 academic season. Next week on June 20th, uh, William Thomas will be our guest. He's written a book called The Iron Way, Railroads, the Civil War, and the Making of Modern America. I've already started looking through it. It looks fascinating. Uh, one of my students read it and recommended it highly. So should be good. And we will have some extraordinary uh, uh, people coming back, uh, coming to you in the fall. The schedule will be posted, as it always is, at impedimentsofwar.org on the internet. Go to that website. You will, uh, when, when the schedule is posted, uh, the 1819 schedule, that'll be sometime during the summer. You'll see familiar names coming back to the show, people like uh, Richard Summers, Caroline Janey, uh, well-known historians like Kirk Savage, Peter Charles Hoffer, other people you've uh, perhaps never heard of, perhaps new authors with first books. So lots to look for there. Uh, keep an eye on the website and uh, join us for that. While you're there, feel free to donate to uh, by pushing the PayPal donation button, send uh, donations in the amount of uh, five or ten thousand dollars to help pay for the kitchen repair, or just five or ten dollars to support the book fund. Your choice. Tonight we are talking about a, a f utterly fascinating book. It is called *The Lost Light: A Civil War Mystery*. I had a copy of this on my shelf for several years, and 
just got it from the back of the book. It's about uh, a lighthouse, and you know how can that be fascinating? How can you make uh, a great book about that? But uh, listener and uh, this hallowed ground traveler, Jennifer Cowley, recommended it to me, so I looked at it, and it is fascinating. Uh, it's it's quite the mystery, and it's worth unraveling. Let's talk to the author, Kevin P. Duffus, and find out about The Lost Light. Uh, Kevin, are you there? I, I am here, Jerry. Thank you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, was this uh, your first book uh, of several that you've written? It was. Um, in fact, I had no intention nor even idea that I would ever write a book. I was... I've had a few different careers, but I had been uh, in the television business and had been an executive producer for a major CBS station, And but my passion at that time was documentary filmmaking. And I had produced a number of documentaries on the maritime, different aspects of the maritime history of North Carolina, and um, I turned my attention to this subject. It was really inspired by a footnote in John Barrett's uh, seminal work, uh, Civil War in North Carolina, and uh, that's really kind of where the my interest was uh, initiated. For our listeners who are not uh, from North Carolina, can we give a quick geography lesson on where Cape Hatteras is and, and why it's an important uh, place? Sure. Well, I mean, North Carolina has a, a really quite a large coastline, 375 miles um, and it is distinctive because of its three capes, uh, Cape Fear, Cape Lookout, and Cape Hatteras. Cape Hatteras, uh, in particular, is uh, well known because um, it sort of anchors or is the, the sort of the center point of what has become known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic. And the shoals that extend off of all three capes uh, have caused over really over a period of almost 500 years, um, countless shipwrecks. But the shoals off of Cape Hatteras in particular, known as Diamond Shoals, uh, were uh, caused uh, probably the greatest number of these shipwrecks. And it, um, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, of course, sort of bulges out into the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, the extremity of Cape Hatteras and Diamond Shoals almost uh, touches the, uh, the Gulf Stream. And so many ships heading from the south to the north would uh, naturally come fairly close to, uh, to Cape Hatteras. Uh, and it's, um, of course, navigational perils. And so um, the government really, beginning uh, not long after the, the United States was established, um, set its sights on establishing a lighthouse at Cape Hatteras. Not to, uh, uh, until, up until that point, most American lighthouses that had been uh, constructed and established mostly by their local communities, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Boston Light, for example, or Tybee Island Light, or Charleston Light, um, those, those lighthouses were intended to guide ships into a harbor, but at Cape Hatteras, uh, the lighthouse there was uh, intended or designed to warn ships away from a navigational hazard. And um, 
so since the late 1700s, the Cape Hatteras has been considered the most important point on the American coast for a lighthouse. So if, if you're sailing up the coast in a sort of northeasterly direction, uh, Cape Hatteras is like almost the elbow where, where you bend and start heading due north, and that's where the shoals are sticking out. So uh, if you see that light, you're, you're too close. It's time to get further out to sea. Uh, well, now, you, you, you would want to see the light, uh, but you <laughs> wouldn't want to you you would want to see it just barely on the horizon. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to see much more of it than that. Although in the early days, I mean, when that lighthouse was uh, first established, uh, it took five years to build the original Cape Hatteras lighthouse between 1798 and 1803. Uh, it was a it, it was had a reputation of being one of the worst lighthouses in the world. And so uh, at least one navigator had complained to the government that they uh, nearly ran ashore trying to find the lighthouse. Mm. So the the lighthouse that we're going to talk about that's there during the Civil War is, is, uh, it is in a central location. Uh, you've, you've got this initial lighthouse built, you say, constructed by 1803, uh, with a lot of uh, flaws in it. We're going to take a short break, come back and find out about this initial lighthouse and about what happened to it uh, during the war in our next segment. We're talking tonight with Kevin Duffus, author of The Lost Light, A Civil War Mystery. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kevin Duffus, author of The Lost Light, a Civil War Mystery. We're talking about the light in the lighthouse at Cape Hatteras, uh, which is on the outer banks, the long, thin barrier islands off the coast of North Carolina. Listeners, if you're not familiar with the geography of eastern North Carolina, uh, put a pause on the podcast, go get yourself a map, it'll help you follow along, or if you have a copy of this book, there's an excellent map of the counties and uh, coastal features of eastern North Carolina in 1860 that really helps follow the action. So, uh, Kevin, you said that the initial lighthouse uh, at Cape Hatteras was not very effective, but in uh, 1854, the government puts in a new one with a fabulous new lens and the first question I have to ask is, how do you pronounce the name of the lens that they Fr- put Fresnel. in? Fresnel. Fresnel. F-E-R-S-N-E-L. Correct. Named after Augustin Fresnel, the French physicist who invented it. So what is a Fresnel lens? Well, there have been, of course, uh, various uh, versions of the Fresnel lens, but it's essentially a, uh, a barrel-shaped optical, high-precision optical instrument, and in the case of the Cape Hatteras Fresnel lens, it was a called a first-order Fresnel lens, which was um, built and designed to be the largest and brightest and be uh, seen at the greatest distance off in the ocean, and the Cape Hatteras Fresnel lens consisted of about a thousand crown glass prisms uh, and center bullseye flash panels, that, uh, like gigantic magnifying glasses. And um, the Hatter's lens was uh, 12 feet tall. It was 6 feet wide. Uh, you could stand inside it. You could actually put a couple of people inside it. Um, and really, the, the brilliance behind the, the uh, Fresnel's invention is that previously, a lighthouse like Cape Hatteras was illuminated by as many as 24 whale oil-fueled lamps and parabolic reflectors, which produced a tremendous amount of heat, uh, was used a tremendous amount of fuel. And the Fresnel lens allowed them to reduce the lighting apparatus to a single uh, uh, oil lamp with four concentric wicks. And so it was a, uh, had a, a tremendous uh, savings in, in oil. Um, and in the case of Hatteras, the, the, the lens, this gigantic lens that weighed over 6,000 pounds, sat on a, a rotating clockwork mechanism that uh, resulted in the, lens, uh, the lens's flash. And at Cape Hatteras, the lens, if you were a mariner offshore 20 miles at sea, you would see a flash once every 10 seconds. And then, of course, by consulting your navigational chart and sailing instructions, you would know that that was the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse because of its distinct, distinctive flash pattern. So this is really a, a elaborate high-tech invention to take a, the, these relatively small burning lamps and magnify them uh, 
with thousands of pieces of precisely manufactured glass, um, it, it's and, and this is reflected, no pun intended, in the the illustrations in the book, uh, as well as the description. It's it's an amazing aesthetic achievement, uh, as well as a technical one. Absolutely, I mean it's it was one really one of the most remarkable inventions of the Victorian age, and. Um, and interestingly enough, I don't think that any nation uh, could replicate it today. I mean, I don't think that, uh, the, you know, no one could afford to make a Fresnel lens today if they wanted to. Um, so, it, this was displayed at the uh, the Crystal Palace exhibition in London, for example. It was such a, a, an amazing achievement. Well, the, there was a British, yes, there was a British lens uh, mm-hmm. that was... Um, this one of the probably the centerpiece of the uh, great exhibition or the world's fair in london in 1851 mm-hmm. and of course the united states government uh, wanted to sort of replicate the success of that world's fair and they held their own world's fair in 1853 in new york city and and uh, that also featured a fresnel lens is that correct well it did and that's actually one of the one of the great Surprises. I mean, this this story. Um, it it I sort of followed the trail of this lens. Sometimes not knowing that I was following the trail of the lens over a period of maybe forty years. And even after I published the first edition of the book, I didn't know the full story. Uh, I had obviously enough information. I, I solved the mystery and found the lens and proved that it was the the lens that was uh, removed from the lighthouse in the summer of 1861 under orders of the Confederate government in Richmond. But there was so much, I didn't know the, um, I, I didn't know the, the prologue to the story, which was that this Cape Hatteras lens was one of the very first two purchased by the U.S. government, first order Fresnel lenses to be mm-hmm. installed in lighthouses. And the, and the first lens was, uh, this, the first lens was actually constructed in Paris in 1849 and was eventually sent down to the Sand Key Lighthouse off of Key West. And the second lens, which was an identical uh, apparatus, was uh, assigned to Cape Hatteras. But before it went to Cape Hatteras, it was put on display at the Crystal Palace in New York City in 1853. And uh, I, this, is, this was a revelation that I didn't discover until after. I think I even published the second edition of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until just, uh, I think it was uh, 2012, that I uh, put the pieces of the puzzle together and discovered this uh, early history of the lens, which completely explains why it was, it was pursued throughout the Civil War. I mean, it was, towns were threatened with destruction, and um, the steamboat that had transported the lens was captured and sunk, and there were many recriminations uh, that the keeper who helped removed the lens from the lighthouse in the summer of 1861 was actually pursued by the law firm of William Seward, uh, and um, they were never able to, to locate him. Well, but, it, it uh, is, oh, I say it, it is really a, an important uh, example of, of technology, of craftsmanship, of aesthetics, of, uh, of, of social commitment in the form of a lighthouse, the, the nation spending money to preserve the lives of sailors and, and, and promote trade. Uh, 
so so the fact that it was shown at this exhibition certainly makes sense. And as you point out, your your book uh, has multiple editions. I read the second edition, and you were kind enough to send me a copy of the third edition, which has the uh, the, the addendum describing the, the New York exhibition and your discovery of that. One of the things I found so interesting about the book is the the, the tangled threads that you describe, both how you pursued the story and how the story itself unfolds. Uh, let's jump to the, the war itself. When the Civil War breaks out, as everyone listening knows, the Union declares a blockade of the southern ports. The Union Navy uh, stations itself off of various ports in the south. And uh, the Confederate reaction is to make life difficult for the blockaders. Uh, they, they not only close the Hatteras Lighthouse, I, I believe they close all the lighthouses. Is that not correct? That is correct. And actually, that, that process began in South Carolina as soon as South Carolina seceded. They, um, the, that state uh, immediately extinguished their lighthouses. And, and, uh, and in North Carolina, when uh, North Carolina, uh, well, uh, two days after the fall of Fort Sumter, uh, Governor Ellis in North Carolina sent out telegrams to the coast of North Carolina ordering their, his lighthouse superintendents to cease lighting the lighthouses. Uh, that was the first step. But that was a mm-hmm. good um, three weeks or more before North Carolina actually seceded from the Union. But the idea was, of course, was to try to make the coast more difficult to locate for the Union Navy. And, you know, as we know, that that really had no impact whatsoever. No, the Union Navy sets its sight on the coast of North Carolina rather quickly, and... Uh, uh, there are actions uh, along the Outer Banks. You describe the, the Union Navy uh, breaking in through Hatteras Inlet and fighting at Roanoke Island. Um, that that was an interesting battle, very small, self-contained struggle. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened at Roanoke Island, if you would. Well, Roanoke Island was really the, the key. Capturing Roanoke Island was the was considered sort of the strategic uh, key to gaining sort of the backdoor access to Hampton Roads and Norfolk. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was really the importance of it. Um, It really, as a a battle, was over very quickly. But Mm -hmm. uh, General Burnside landed uh, something like 10,000 soldiers there at Roanoke Island. Uh, oddly enough, and I, don't, I know at some point in this conversation we may come back to this, but one of my great-great-grandfathers was one of those soldiers. Um, now, but, you didn't know that when you started the search, though, did you? No. I. Um, this, when you said that uh, it's, there were many threads to the story that I've pursued, I, I also think mm-hmm. that the story has pursued me. Mm-hmm. And I had since I was a boy, had had in a shoebox a, uh, a a pin, a Civil War pin that, that belonged to someone. I didn't know who it was. And uh, when I began to research the story, I, I put two and two together and read, of course, one of the units that landed on Hatteras Island. In fact, I believe that really the unit that may have been assigned the task of finding out why the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse wasn't operating was uh, Company G of the 9th New York Volunteers, uh, or the Hawkins Zouaves. 
And mm-hmm. um, when I came across that in my research, I realized that this pin that I had was belonged to someone who was in the Ninth New York. Unfortunately, at the time, my father was still uh, living, and actually, he was living in Greenville. And um, ah. I uh, asked him where I got the pin from, and he said, "Well, your grand your your grandmother gave that to you when you were." probably five or six years old, and that belonged to her grandfather. And sure enough, I, I did a little research. There was a name scratched on the back, M. O'Brien, and uh, Michael O'Brien was an 18-year-old Irishman in New York City who enlisted in the summer of 1861 and joined the ninth New- Company G of the 9th New York Volunteers. And, uh, and so that was my connection to the story. I almost think that that medallion, it turned out to be a, a, it's a very rare reunion medallion I, I've been told by a collector that there may only be just a couple of those even in existence but uh, that sort of became my talisman that, that uh, I, I hold from time to time to sort of seek the answers to these historical <laughs> mysteries so so your great great grandfather was in the ninth New York which is the unit that goes uh, ashore and at, at Hatteras Island is, is going to see why the lighthouse is not operating. They find that the lens is gone. Uh, the Confederates have removed it. And uh, 150 years later, you'll be looking for that same lens. It really is a remarkable story. Uh, so where did it go from, from there? Where, where did the Union look for it after, uh, after they didn't find it there? Because as we've established, it was an important cultural item as well as a significant uh, technical thing it, it, it represented it, it was something everybody knew about and, sure and well yeah it was it was purely it was certainly symbolic to the u.s <laughs> government and uh i have traced the the various orders from the highest levels of the uh of the federal government to seek and recapture the hatteras lens what happened was the uh confederate uh the, the, the Confederate Treasury established a lighthouse bureau, patterned very much like on the Federal Lighthouse Bureau, but it had one purpose, and that was to disable and to and to hide and also keep track of all of these lighthouse lenses, because, of course, uh, the Confederate government fully expected to win the war and then have to reestablish these lighthouses. So uh, even though many of these lenses were inadvertently damaged. Uh, the, the Confederate government, contrary to traditional historical interpretations, the Confederate government did everything they could to try to take good care of them. And so uh, the, in the case of the Hatteras lens, it was placed on a shoal draft steamboat and taken to the town of Washington on the Pamlico River, which is about 20 miles east of where you're located right now. Mm-hmm. And it was hidden there in a warehouse for about nine months, and then after General Burnside captured Roanoke Island and then immediately went to Newburn and captured Newburn, one of the items on his to-do list was to send a detachment of uh, soldiers and sailors up to Washington to try to recover the Cape Hatteras lens. And uh, about the day before they got there, the Hatteras lens was put on a, another steamboat and taken up the Tar River to this town called Tarboro. And then from there, it went on a... Um, uh, railroad eventually to a plantation on the North Carolina-Virginia border called Hibernia, and it was hidden at that location. And that I, I say that that's, that was the last known uh, uh, location of the lens, and for 140 years after that, no one really knew what happened to it, although 
there was enough information there that you know it, it wasn't really lost; it was simply misplaced. So the the lens is, is missing uh, at this time. Uh, I'll tell listeners now: if you're listening, uh, you want to get a copy of this book. It's just very entertaining and. Uh, intriguing as you follow the mystery and how Kevin unraveled the mystery. If you plan to do that, uh, this is a good time to stop listening, order the book, read it, and then come back and listen to the third segment uh, when we answer some of these questions. So this is a, a spoiler alert. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the rest of the book when we come back. Uh, but we're, we've got the lens out of the lighthouse, uh, out of off the island onto the mainland at, at Washington, then to Tarboro, finally to Hibernia Plantation. Uh, a lot of the lenses end up in, in Raleigh, where the Union Army finds them near the end of the war. Uh, perhaps the uh, perhaps the lenses in Raleigh uh, will say. Perhaps it's still out in some rural town. We don't know. And we'll leave you hanging, listeners, as we take a short break and come back and find out more about the mystery of The Lost Light, a Civil War mystery. That's the name of the book by Kevin Duffus, our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kevin P. Duffus, author of The Lost Light, A Civil War Mystery. It's the mystery of what happened to the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse Lens, which... uh, disappeared during the war. Uh, Kevin, we've taken the story up to really the end of the war. Sherman's men occupy North Carolina. Uh, surely they must have found the lens uh, somewhere. Uh, where, what did they look for? What did they see? Well, none of the, there were probably uh, uh, two dozen, at least two dozen 
for nail lenses of various sizes from the coast of North Carolina that all disappeared. And mm-hmm. uh, everywhere Union troops went, they, they searched for these lenses. And it wasn't until Sherman's army marched up um, the Fayetteville Street in downtown Raleigh and um, captured Raleigh in April of 1865. And Sherman uh, sent his signal corps up to the Capitol building to uh, take down the Confederate flag and to raise uh, the, the U.S. flag over the dome. And when they entered the Capitol building uh, and ascended the stairs into in the rotunda between the House and Senate chambers, uh, they were uh, shocked to discover uh, stacks and stacks of uh, boxes or crates, pine crates, uh, with lighthouse lenses. Um, and uh, it was for a time believed that the Cape Hatteras lens was among those lenses. There were only, were only two first-order Fresnel lenses in North Carolina during the Civil War, Cape Hatteras and Cape Lookout, and they weren't sure which one was the one that was there. Uh, one of the remarkable things about that episode in this story is, is that the, um, the floor of the Capitol was littered with thousands of papers. And when uh, Sherman's uh, uh, quartermaster ordered uh, these, all these lighthouse lenses to be uh, packaged or uh, prepared to be shipped back up north, uh, first to Washington, then to Staten Island, New York, the workmen uh, were taking papers off the floor of the Capitol building and using them to wrap these fragile Fresnel lenses. Um, in the course of my research, I was at the National Archives, and I was going through these uh, letters pertaining specifically to the discovery of the lighthouse lenses in the Capitol. And I noticed that General Montgomery Meigs, Quartermaster General of the United States, signed out of his office on a, on a special mission to Raleigh. It turns out he accompanied uh, General Grant, who went to Raleigh to redirect Sherman's uh, uh, surrender negotiations with General Joe Jackson. But uh, General Meigs' assignment was to oversee the transfer of all these fragile lighthouse lenses. And Meigs, when he got to the Capitol, was uh, appalled when he noticed that these workmen, who apparently were illiterate, were using uh, colonial and uh, in early uh, U.S. Uh, records or documents with the original signatures of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and John Knox and so forth. They were t- taking these papers and wrapping prisms with them and then sticking them in boxes. And So um, North Carolina's archives end up getting used as packing material. Right. And um, so that was, I mean, there, there's so many uh, surprising discoveries in the course of the research uh, uh, that I did for this book and, and one we just we skipped over but when the mm-hmm. when the lens was erected at the Crystal Palace in New York City in the summer of 1853 in fact between July 1st and July 4th of 1853 uh, the engineer who oversaw the uh, the assembly of the lens was a, a, a captain in the topographical engineers uh, who went by the name GG Meade who just 10 years hmm. to the very day happened to be General George Meade. Uh, At Gettysburg. Exactly. Which was wow. another... So this this lens that I've been searching for, you know, of course, has been touched by General George Meade. I mean, it's, there, there's so many interesting connections. But back to the Capitol, the, the, it was eventually determined that the first order Fresnel lens found at the Capitol was the Cape Lookout lens. And so... And you have to understand, I'm... This mystery is, is unfolding 
as as I'm researching it, but I keep coming to these sharp turns that send me off in a completely new direction. Um, so the lens was still missing, and and actually my my search for it really began at the last known lo- location of the lens, which was at Hibernia Plantation. I made mm-hmm. numerous trips to this very rural area of central North Carolina and uh, and looked for the lens. The local legend said that it was had been buried or hidden in a mine, and mm-hmm. uh, sure enough, there were mines in the area, but they postdated the, uh, the Civil War. And uh, eventually, my the solution to this mystery I found at the National Archives in Washington. So, so where where was the where was it all this time? Well, what happened was the the men who hid the lens throughout the Civil War, and I I have I don't know where they hid it, but they hid it pretty somewhere pretty well because at the end of the war when Sherman's army disbanded, uh, the uh, the 14th Corps and the 20th Corps, uh, when they left Raleigh and marched north to Washington, D.C., which consisted of 28,000 soldiers, they marched right through Hibernia Plantation. And sure enough, one of the, uh, a descendant of, of the owner of Hibernia Plant, uh, Plantation told me in an interview that she remembered her, one of her great aunts telling her the story about the time the Yankees were on Hibernia. And, um, the lens was still hidden somewhere on Hibernia, but they 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 didn't turn it up. And uh, be, and the reason why I know that is that the lens appeared uh, out of nowhere uh, about four months later in September of 1865 uh, in a town about 20 miles from Hibernia Plantation, and it was neatly stacked up near the train station there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, Union forces were able to recover the lens, and they shipped it back to New York. Uh, the lens, at this point, at the end of the war, I mean, there were there were more than a hundred Fresnel lenses throughout the South that were being returned, and many of them required repairs. These were very fragile uh, optical instruments, and so the biggest lenses, in particular, uh, had to be returned to Paris so that the manufacturers could uh, make necessary repairs and refocus the uh, optical apparatus. And ship them back. Uh, during the war, I mean, Cape Hatteras was so important uh, that during the war it was um, restored with a new, another first order Fresnel lens made by the same company in Paris. And so there was no urgent um, uh, need to to get the the lost Cape Hatteras lens repaired. So it wasn't until 1868 uh, that it had been sent to Paris and then returned to the United States. And it basically sat in Staten Island, New York, in a warehouse until the spring of 1870. And that was when the modern Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, the very uh, well-known, iconic barber pole, 200-foot-tall tower, was nearing completion. And at the very last minute, and this this new lighthouse that we all are familiar with today was standing about 600 feet from the old Cape Hatteras lighthouse, which had the replacement lens in it from the Civil War. And it was at the last minute the government decided that rather than transfer the replacement lens from the old tower to the new tower, that they decided to return the original lens to Cape Hatteras, but putting it in the modern 1870 tower. But and, nobody knew that that was, or, or at least 
it was not widely recorded that that was the original Cape Hatteras lens. It was just from our supply of refurbished lenses in Staten Island, let's send down this this first order lens. Well, there were there were certain people who were well aware of the history of the lens. I mean, a, okay, a, Admiral Shubrick, who was the chairman of the of the U.S. Lighthouse Board, uh, had been chairman since uh, the lens had been displayed at the Crystal Palace in New York City. So he he knew he knew the importance of the lens and where it had been. But I don't think that they were uh, quite as nostalgic about historic artifacts as maybe we are today. And so it probably was not considered uh, that, that big of a deal. Or it maybe seemed natural to them to simply return the lens back to Cape Hatteras. Now, what they didn't know, and what's remarkable is, you know, what happened to the lens after that? Because the story is, you know, far from over. Uh, it has a rather, unfortunately, uh, tragic consequences. But then, you know, there is redemption also at the end of the story. It does, which we have only a few minutes left, which is all the more reason listeners are going to go out and buy a copy of The Lost Light to find out the full details of the lens's ultimate fate. Uh, but we can give the, uh, and again, we'll spoiler alert, uh, we'll, we'll tell you how it ends. Uh, the... Most people know the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse is awfully close to the uh, uh, to the water, uh, and and many people listening to the show probably remember in the 1990s when the uh, great engineering feat was attempted of moving the lighthouse uh, several hundred feet inland to to get it away from there. By that time, it's not being used anymore as as a the, the actual lighthouse. Uh, and and so was the lens taken out and cared for, or what what happened to it? Well, actually, the the lighthouse was actually abandoned originally uh, the uh, in 1936, mm-hmm. and um, the light the lens uh, was the what happened. The lens was left at the top of the lighthouse, and over a period of years, and primarily uh, during and after World War II, the lens was vandalized. And as much as two thirds of the of the crown glass prisms were stolen, uh, and as souvenirs, and uh, it was in 1951 that the that the Coast Guard and the government decided that the lighthouse was not imminently in danger, so they reestablished the lighthouse. Actually, the lighthouse was has been in operation since 1951, uh, but with a modern rotating aviation beacon. So in 1951, the lens was removed. It was uh, unceremoniously uh, placed on shelves in a government warehouse. I, I like to say that the the ending of the story for me was a little bit like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, in that the <laughs> the lens was on a on, in a in a in a government warehouse, and they didn't know really exactly what it. You know, they knew it was a lighthouse lens, but they had no idea that this was a lens that was handled by General George Meade, you know, in 1853 and seen by millions of people in New York City and um, was had been chased throughout the Civil War. And um, it seemed like a rather unsatisfying ending. And so with the help of uh, Joe Schwartzer, who was the executive director of the Graveyard of the Atlantic Museum in Hatteras, he and I uh, have uh, had petitioned the National Park Service to allow us to reconstruct what was left of the lens and then in another edition we were able to um, 
uh, in 2006 actually recover the cast iron rotating pedestal from the top of Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, something that the, the Park Service said they didn't think would ever happen, but they <laughs> they eventually um, uh, surrendered to our, our petitions and allowed us to reconstruct this lens. It's now at the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum, uh, a rather remarkable exhibit standing 22 feet high uh, over visitors as they walk through the front doors. And so uh, we were able to um, rescue this uh, um, uh, artifact that that a lighthouse uh, lampist, a nationally known lighthouse lampist, has called it a national treasure. And certainly, well, it, I it, think it's, it, it certainly appears that way in your book. It tells a story that makes it uh, so valuable and so interesting in its history, uh, as history of technology, as cultural history, as military and naval history, uh, it, it all ties together. The uh, lens, people didn't know where it was, the original one, for uh, for many years. As you said, they, some thought it was in a lighthouse in the Pacific, uh, but you, you identified it. It's the one that was in plain sight in the actual Hatteras, the new Hatteras Lighthouse all along, and now... Visitors, listeners, if you're anywhere in North Carolina area, head out to the Outer Banks, go to the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum uh, in Hatteras, North Carolina. You can see uh, the remaining pieces of the lens, the framework of the lens. If anyone listening to the show has a piece of the lens, maybe it's a family artifact, do the right thing and contact the museum and offer it back to them uh, so they can help reconstruct this uh, this lens to be what it ought to be, but even in its incomplete form, it's, it's a very, it's an awesome artifact. Uh, I, yes, I think, I think it's definitely a potent, it's a very potent lesson uh, as to what can happen to a very important historic artifact. If, if it's left unattended, uh, absolutely. But it's also a lesson what, what perseverance and, and determination and historical uh, detective work can do in terms of finding this, and so there is at least that uh, redemption to be taken from it that we can today see uh, the remnants of the lens and get a sense of what its grandeur must have been, and uh, you know hopefully over time may- maybe some more people will come forward with pieces of it. Unfortunately, uh, Kevin, we are out of time. I'm sure you will go on making more discoveries connected with this and other things. Uh, but it has been a real pleasure talking with you this evening. Thank you, Jerry. I've enjoyed it. And listeners, uh, go out and get a copy of The Lost Light, a Civil War Mystery. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.